and welcome to Polly Pages. Books. <laughs> the podcast where genuine Polly people read the texts that have shaped our community and culture. I'm Claire. And I'm Sebastian. And on this season, we're reading The Ethical Slut, third edition, by Janet Hardy and Dossie Easton. Sebastian, where are you? I'm on my couch. Where are you, Claire? I'm on your couch. That's weird. That's not where you're supposed to be, is it? <laughs> where am I supposed to be? You're supposed to be in the airport. In the airport, yeah. I'm meant to be getting on a plane, but so, I'm not going to get that flight. Why is that, Claire? <laughs> I couldn't be bothered. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so today we are reading um, chapter four, which is called Slut Styles. Yes, it is. It sounds much dirtier than, than it actually is. Um, so in this chapter, they start to look at what we can learn from other cultures, societies, groups, um, and how we can take what how they have done things or what they've gone through in polyamory to figure out how we're going to do things. Yeah, um, I think that is exactly what it does. But I think there is an underlying motive for this entire chapter, which is just to kind of say to anyone that's reading it, or I guess listening to this, that you are not the only one and that others have and do live in non-monogamous ways, consensually, but basically right. it can be done because I felt really warm and fuzzy after reading this. Me too. So let's dive in. What's the first section? So they start by talking about relationship pioneers. Um, and they tell us about how Dossie actually coined the phrase ethical slut, which makes sense because she wrote the book on it. Um, and And they go from that to talking about different cultures that have existed throughout time um, and through history that have had different forms of non-monogamy and different ways that society has done that. Kind of to point out that like this monogamous culture that we live in now is not the way the world has always been. And there have been other ways to do it and there are currently other ways to do it. Um, so they start off there talking about ancient cultures, which is the first section, um, and pointing out that Everywhere from the Babylonians to the Mormons, who still exist today, practice mm-hmm. different forms of non-monogamy. Oh God, is she talking about polyamory or is she talking about polygamy? Well, people make <laughs> that mistake and I take offense at that because I've been called a polygamist a couple of times. But you're, okay, for everyone listening, polygamy is when you marry multiple men. Polygyny is when you, or polygyny is when you marry multiple women. Mm-hmm. But no one knows right. the polygyny Wait, I don't even know no, how to poly, say it. Polyandry is when you marry multiple men. Oh, is it? Yeah. See, I don't even use this po- term. This polygamy, is how I know about it. Polygamy, I think, is technically like multiple marriages in with some sort of oh, framework illegal. behind them um, that allows that. But a lot of the times polygamy is just used as like... Either man, way, it's not what we do. Man who, who takes many wives. Man who takes many wives. Which is not me, for a number of reasons. <laughs> How many wives do you have? None. <laughs> it's reminding me of Borat right now, that's not helpful. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, and they talk about... Anyway, so back to this. Like The Roman Empire had very different views on relationships. Um, they talk about the ancient Babylonians, like I said... Um, And then this idea that the actual sort of monogamist values originate from Christianity, where if you couldn't manage the ideal of celibacy, monogamy was the next closest thing because you were almost celibate. You celibate but one person. But one, as opposed to hoeing around. Yeah. 
or whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah. But before that, there was lots of ancient cultures doing non-monogamy well. Yeah. Okay, and then they move on to talk about utopian sexual communities, which are experiments in creating intentional, like, kind of sexual utopias. Yeah. Um, and these all much more recently. Yeah, so they're talking about um, Rajneesh Puram, which I think is kind of famous now because there is a Netflix documentary. I say documentary really? in a very fluid way. Air quotes. Air quotes. Ding, 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 ding. ding. <laughs> um, on Netflix about it. But that originated in the 1960s. And then there's Krista, which originated in, I think, also the 1960s. Um, and this, these are, as I said, intentional sexual utopias that are led by some kind of leader. Mm-hmm. Um, and the leader then, obviously, both of the leaders of these, these two communities have now died. Mm-hmm. Um, but the... The ideals live on, the philosophies live on. Um, and I actually did some extra reading on Rajneesh Puram. Which was very cool because I'd never heard of these before. Yeah, so Rajneesh, re, really need to, re, Rajneesh Puram um, was right. this 65,000 acre piece of land that people bought in Oregon, that this person bought in Oregon, this guru. Mm-hmm. And he made it um, this huge, great big city. It had an airstrip. Pretty cool. It had an airstrip, it had a public transit system, it had a, a reservoir, a post office, it had a zip code. Did you say it had a mall? It has, yeah, it had two malls. I remember that. Um, and he he kind of like led, I think, something like 7,000 people in this city, and he they engaged in multiple sexual relationships with one another as a form of physical therapy, spiritual therapy, and they explicitly rejected marriage. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas Krista which I hope I'm saying it right, like maybe Kirist, was started by um, a guy who was called John Peltz Pressmont. Um, he was like a war veteran and apparently one day had this holy sanatory experience mm-hmm. when he realized that he needed to try and um, preach, the, preach the world this new mm-hmm. way of living. Um, and actually coined the phrase compersion. We love compersion. We do. Um, yeah, and they, they very much had, like, a no-one-belongs-to-anyone policy. So these were, these were all sexual utopias that explicitly rejected marriage. Um, and uh, we can probably go into more detail about them, but this is kind of a long chapter, so you won't. Yeah, it's just really cool to see, like, people... People did manage to make this happen yeah. and work yeah. for generations. Yeah. Um, and both of those leaders only died the year I was born, 1919. Yeah. So. Um, all right. Um, they also talk about artists and free thinkers. Um and when I read, the, read this, it wasn't particularly surprising to me. Um, some of the names kind of were the ones I recognized, but, um, you know, they talked about that there have been people throughout history, so not even just recent history, um, artists and um, poets and, and people like that, who did explore alternative relationships. Um, and we get to see that because they wrote and documented those things and so we have this glimpse into their lives mm-hmm. um one of the things they talk about is the bloomsbury group which is in the early 20th century yeah. england that's from my neck of the woods that's from claire probably knows more about than me um but it's it's a group <laughs> of authors and free thinkers so mm-hmm. right so, so people in the creative realm in a you know intellectual hub of of england mm-hmm. who you know chose to do relationships differently and it's documented because we're fortunate that these were all people who had a voice in the world that's lasted yeah and we can see even what's that almost 200 years ago now 
in a very different time that this was happening. Um, and the the authors suppose, and I agree that, you know, for those, all of those people that were doing it, there were probably plenty of others who did not have that voice, who, who or whose works weren't kept or who weren't able to document it or whatever reason or didn't have the ability to be out there about it. So this reminds me of um, a great book that kind of um, kind of thinks about the same the the history of kink and BDSM in the mm-hmm. same way, which is that this has obviously been done. I mean, the, this book, which is called um, "The History of Sadomasochism," and it's by um, Peter Tupper, uh-huh. and it's ama- it's it's very like it's very detailed. It goes back and it tries to find the roots of various types of kink play and fetishization and expressions of kink um, and map them. And he states in this podcast I was listening to mm. about it, that we only have glimpses of this, but it must have been happening and people were just figuring it out. Right. And we only have these little windows into what people were doing because right. a few people kept their diaries. Or, you mm-hmm. know, if this if this um, Bloomsbury group hadn't all been, like, pretty affluently wealthy and, like, literary people, we mm. wouldn't have that documentation. But People were still doing it. But people will um, still have been doing it, yeah. This reminds me, actually, of... Um, I don't know if you shared this podcast with me. I don't know what podcast it was I was listening to. But it was talking about um, what might have been the origin of swinging in the States. Um, and they tied it back to um, one of the wars. Maybe the Vietnam War. Um, and it had to do with soldiers. Um, because soldiers and their wives would form these very tight-knit communities. And it was more this idea of, like, these are basically your brothers... Um, kind of like this really close-knit group and they would go over and the soldiers would have this sort of like taking care of like if one of them were to die for example would be you know they would band together to take care of the the spouses or the wives and the families you need to try Um, that podcast because i'll have to find it because it just popped into my head and it went back to this idea of you know taking care of each other and it's sort of you know however it evolved that 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 may have led to the, the sort of more intimate sort of commingling of relationships because of these really tight bonds and this idea of taking care of each other. You mean ethical multi-partner living? Ethical Ethical multi-partner living, yes, indeed. Um, So yeah, I think it's just, it's important to realize, like... People have done this. People have done this. And for every person that we can see in history that is doing it, there's plenty, plenty more people who are probably doing it in secret or who are just not being recorded doing it. Definitely. Um, which brings us... To the final um, type of, of sluthood that we can think of, which is the love generation. And I think when people think about, in, like, swinging and um, other forms of consensual monogamy, uh, they probably think about hippies, mm-hmm. like free love. Yeah. And it is not surprising to me that both Dossie and Janet Mm-hmm. were involved with that and yeah. they give a shout out in this book right. to these days of what they call radical exploration mm-hmm. um it was also a time of exploration into political and like ecological issues and race and gender but sexuality was definitely there yeah. and they really like they say here if you're reading and enjoying the ethical slut today thank a hippie mm-hmm. for um, real though so that kind of like brings brings the short pretty short history we've had to to go uh, go through it at a flying flying pace yeah. um but i'm sure it's something we could dive into for hours if we started oh God, we could do, like, looking into all all of those things like yeah. just the few things that they reference let alone what other things are out there maybe we could do like a bonus episode on yeah. on some of these things but, um, um they also yeah. then talk about the the slut the the types of 
slut styles that are available mm-hmm. um, in other, uh, let's say, se- sexual yeah. subcultures. Um, um. And what we can take from those communities, not only about how to like logistically manage our relationships, but also to mitigate iso- isolation and yeah. exchange information and support and like how how we can learn from those circles. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, they just reiterate, like, you're not the only one. And I think that right. that's very reminiscent of the It Gets Better yeah. um, movement of, yeah. like, five years ago or whatever. And, yeah, I mean, going into this, they're, they're, they start to look at other groups. Um, and now, instead of just historical things, but other current groups that have to do with relationships and yeah. sex and gender and, and those types of things and how they have had to, the, the things they've had to overcome. And then also um, what we can learn from all of these different um, different groups and to help us be our own group that is itself a group. <laughs> wow, okay. That was, that was a sentence like right there. You're so eloquent. It's the, it's the American in me. <laughs> okay. So the first um, uh, sexual subculture that they look at um, what is lesbian women. And I'm going to take that one and roll with it because... I uh, I obviously have relationships with women and um, have have existed in the sort of subspace that lesbian women exist in, and they they make some really good, interesting points about mm-hmm. what polyamory and non monogamy can maybe draw from from mm-hmm. that space and note in, and note from that space. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first one they talk about is um, they talk about uh, in that role women get to step into the the position of being a sexual instigator which is something that in a heterosexual or or heteronormative maybe um Mm. interaction um they're they're not yeah they're not i feel like that's fair i feel like it comes back to this idea that women um women are meant to be sleeping beauties waiting for like prince charming or whatever Mm. um and we may just have to wait forever because the worst thing that women could do is be too forthright and to try and instigate sex. And it's all very, it's all very sexist and patriarchal. But the great thing about the lesbian women subculture mm-hmm. um, and female female partnerships is that that mm-hmm. kind of evaporates, and women can then explore that, explore explore how mm-hmm. they would do that if they were able to just walk up to somebody and and feel it out and, and make their their desires noted mm-hmm. this might be a safe space where you could actually experiment with that yeah um they do say that women often want very explicit permission for each specific act and their communication could serve as an excellent role model for negotiated consent and i know that they do speak a lot about consent in mm-hmm. in future chapters so i won't dwell on it we keep we keep coming up to it and we're waiting for the chapter we're, to really dive into that <laughs> this chapter is going to be hopefully really good um can't wait and they i think the other big one that i pulled out of this was that they point out that in lesbian relationships there is a subversion of expectations when it comes to physical sex Mm. like when you're growing up and you're thinking about sex and you're being taught what sex is it's very much penis into vagina um and obviously in a lesbian women experience or female female experience more specifically that's a situation where there may not be a penis involved at all or there definitely might not be as much of a um a, i don't know a final end point of the whole experience women right. can just kind of like go on and on and on 
speaking from experience. Um, <laughs> and the expectations for simultaneous orgasm just aren't there. So the whole, the whole way that you begin to think about sex mm. is potentially just like radically different and can really enable mm-hmm. you to have a discussion about um, what you want, what you like, uh, what you would like your partner to be doing. Yeah. Um, and you can take those at, like into any space, really. Yeah. Um, and I do just want to like quote directly from the book that we have yet to meet a dildo that got hung up on its own needs. You get to choose whatever size and shape you want. I, I underlined that. Did you? I thought that was really funny. Um, so I, they, don't, they don't explicitly say it here, but I think we should add that um, the sexual subculture of lesbian women or female to female contact mm. um, does tend to be a lot more like toy friendly, let's say. And I think that that is something that any healthy sexual relationship can learn mm-hmm. from. Yeah. Okay, the next section. The next sexual subculture. I'm going to take this one. I wonder why. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, the next one they talk about is gay men. Mm-hmm. Um, Gee, why are you taking that, Miss Bastion? Wow, might be a little hard for you. <laughs> Sorry. Um, no, I mean, this This is a, a culture that I am have been a little bit involved in mm-hmm. um, and trying to become more so. Um, and it's an experience that I can relate to in some ways. Um and they talk about a lot of things in here. Um, one of the things I underlined right in the beginning is, um, you know, th- there's a really, there's a range as in everything um, of how gay men or any people approach relationships, but especially gay men um, can sometimes be perceived as being world-class sluts. A, <laughs> they get a medal. They get a, <laughs> they get something. <laughs> um... You know, and, and that the, the gay male sort of culture is very different views on sexuality and sex and openness and, and physical relationships, mm-hmm. maybe, than, than other groups. I underlined um, the presumption of equal power, and then yeah. I put a sad face that that only existed in male-male context. Right, <laughs> and I underlined that, too. Um, and, you know, it kind of bothered me, but it, it, in its own way, it is kind of true, it's because good. everybody comes in at it... Um, you know, th- there isn't so much worry about being taken advantage of or being, you know, being like not in power or not being able to handle the situation. So everybody can approach it just very openly and very directly. And that's definitely something that I've seen in talking to men versus talking to women. Yeah, um, I definitely think that, that does prevail. But if I may put an aside in here. You may. Um, it's about the gay panic defense. Oh, yeah, that. Yeah, oh, yeah, um, that. So whilst it's all very well to read this book written by two women about how men can approach one another in this kind of admirably, um, f- like, confident way, it's also yeah. worth noting that um, homosexual men are... Like, like, you can legitimately kill a homosexual man and then plead in 47 states that you were just in a state of violent temporary insanity brought on by by unwanted sexual advances by the yeah. same sex. And that doesn't exist for women. I don't no. really know why. Uh-huh. It yeah. seems so obvious that it's just like this... Ridiculous. It's just a sham. Like, uh-huh. the very fact that this yeah. still exists makes me really sad. Um, but I think whilst whilst reading this, I, I very much was like, oh, I'm sure that yeah. that sounds great, but how realistic is that? And just a, a short Google, mm. and I realised... Yeah, I'd just seen that this recently also. Um, I, I would say when, I, when I'm saying that and agreeing with what they're saying in the book, mm-hmm. it's within the, the gay community. Like, if you're interacting in, in a group of gay men, like, mm-hmm. everybody's pretty open to flirting and, and being pretty straightforward and, like, 
I'm going to say propositioning, but, you know, being open about if they want something. Whereas uh, once you're under that presumption that everybody could be, you know, is is open to that broadly. Hmm. Whereas I would say if I was in a group of women, I would not say the same things. Well, that's because men get a lot of, like, cultural support for being sexual and women don't. Right, and and that's not a good thing. No. Um, But we're going to change that one podcast episode at a time. Um, But they also do talk about, then it also gives them, really, gives us the empowerment to say no much more directly. Um, And they talk about this sort of admirably simple approach to consent. You know, be very straightforward with what you want and be really straightforward with accepting a no when you hear it. And if the whole world was like that across all cultures, that would be great. Um, And the one other thing I want to touch on just in there really quickly is Mm -hmm. that the gay community is really fundamental in in the shift overarchingly to safer sex and understanding what that is um, as a result, unfortunately, of the AIDS epidemic. Um, it's a really sad thing, clearly. Like, it's a really awful, you know, from for that yeah. to have led to this. But at the same time, it's through the gay community and AIDS that nowadays we do have a better understanding of that and are more conscious and aware of it. Yeah, um, and in the face of that epidemic, instead of people becoming like, well, I guess we should just never have sex. Right, they gay found men ways were like, to be well, we responsible. Just, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I, so the, again, there's, there's things to learn from those experiences. Um, so that we can go forward in our new relationships. And we move on to the next group. Yeah, which is bisexual slash pansexual. So quick thing about bisexual, pansexual. Some people I know prefer the term bi, some people prefer the term pansexual. I personally use uh, pansexual. Um, And that's because I don't, I reject the notion of binary genders, mm-hmm. but that isn't to say that that's not a completely legitimate, um, sexual preference, um, mm-hmm. or orientation. Um, and obviously there's no P in LGBT. P, so, Pan, it's all so I think the that bisexuality is, is wider, like more widely known and also is the orientation of one of the authors by this point in this edition. Mm. So that's what they use. But when I'm using bisexual in this, I am also meaning pansexual and I'm with you pansexuals that, that, we need like to be in that yeah. in that mainstream um, media and discussion. I agree. Okay, so they're looking at the theory and practice of bisexual lifestyles and the kind of opportunities that this may give us to explore our assumptions mm-hmm. on the nature of kind of like sexual or romantic attraction and behaviors. Mm-hmm. Um, they explicitly talk about um, the fact that some bisexuals might explore different types of interactions with their different gender genders. Mm-hmm. Um, and that happens monogamously right. like, like let, let's say you're a bisexual man and you're in a relationship with a man and that ends and so then you start a relationship with a woman mm-hmm. you might see yourself acting differently in those two relationships um, partly because of the, the way that you're conceiving of the gender of you mm-hmm. and your partner within that space mm-hmm. and obviously if you're polyamorous those two things might be happening at the same time Yeah. and I think that that is very interesting like I'm really happy they put that in yeah. here um, and what does that give us, essentially? Yeah. That gives us not only what they're saying in this book, which is we get to explore mm-hmm. the information that that can give us about the way that we perceive sex and gender, mm-hmm. but what they don't put in the book here is that bisexuality, at least in my experience, has sometimes been like the port key into polyamory. 
I was going to say that, so I'm glad you said that. You were going to use the phrase portkey because I feel no. like that is a really obscure Harry Potter reference to be no, I put love, in I love that you did it. No, I was going to make the same general comment, though. Yeah, I but, mean, um, they. I, I'm sure that you've had this as well, but I frequently will meet maybe a couple who is exploring... Well, usually it's a woman wanting to explore her, her bisexuality and a man who's just oh so caring and yeah. you know just takes one for so, the team and yeah. gets involved you know yeah. um and i that's where the mythical unicorn hunting comes from yeah. which is a whole different episode and i'm not going to get into my rant on that but yeah and i would say it happens sometimes for couples also with men who are questioning and so this is a way to yeah maybe mitigate some of that stress because they're sort of integrating it into it's also one of the ways that i actually explain polyamory to people who don't know what polyamory is yeah i'm like saying well let's say that you liked both men and women right um what why wouldn't you just have a relationship with a man and a relationship with a woman like clearly there are different needs that are being fulfilled physically and there's obviously different emotional um spaces that you want to have filled in different ways so why not have both at the same time Mm -hmm. um and that's actually been kind of a useful conversation to mm-hmm. get that person to think about polyamory. Yeah. So they don't, in this book, talk about that. They talk about this sexual subculture as giving us uh, a way to think about gender in a fluid mm-hmm. way and the way that we interact with gender. But I yeah. think it bears noting yeah. that it's, it is potentially also for our group like a funnel. Right. Okay. Yeah, let's move on because this is such a big chapter. Cool. So the next sexual subculture, I was surprised this was in here. Yeah. Um, the next subculture is heterosexuals um and yeah i guess i was a little bit subculture i think that's why i'm surprised i mean but it's any if i think anything is a subculture if it's not the entire culture and not the entire culture is heterosexual including some of the heterosexual culture is probably not heterosexual okay Um, but i agree with you um the first thing they talk about which i appreciated is that until fairly recently mainstream culture doesn't paint a very holistic um view of what heterosexual relationships could be it's you know old sitcoms with dad going to work and mom taking care of the kids in the house and very true and then like missionary fully clothed lights off every night yeah heterosexuals heterosexual um Um, but now and but you know now there there are more and there are plenty of poly people who are heterosexual yeah that's true who are just you know, having multiple heterosexual relationships. Um, and that's totally cool. Do whoever you like. In whichever way you like. In whichever way you like. With, with who, whomever you choose. As long as it's safe, sane, and consensual. Indeed. Um, I don't know where I was going with this. Sorry, um, can I just, like, jump in? Yeah, there? yeah. Um, so one of the things I, I wrote down in this section was pegging. Oh, yeah. they don't talk explicitly about that, but they do talk about the way that now recreational sex, heterosexual sex, has also stemmed mm-hmm. out. It's not just relationships that we now have different interpretations of with different gender roles and mm-hmm. um, different ways to navigate that. But we also have an mm-hmm. explosion of heterosexual, including being toy-friendly. Right. Um, and I don't know about you, but like I often get questions about pegging, which I'm not going to explain on this podcast. You can go look it up. But I often get kind of like people kind of like seem to think it's gay. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, it's literally a straight woman fucking a straight guy right like me- like it's literally like a female fucking a male like i don't think you can get more heterosexual than that 
what you're talking about is patriarchal. <laughs> so, right. It's, so I it's just wanted of, like, yeah. I wrote that on the sub, on like yeah. the sidelines and I, I thought it was, um, uh-huh. it was a good example of what they're talking about here. Yeah. And I, so, yeah, I don't have anything to add to that except I agree. Um, <laughs> going back to what they were saying in the chapter, because um, there's a couple other things in there that I sort of highlighted, um, which is, especially nowadays, that wonderfully, anybody can marry anybody. Mm-hmm. Not quite, not everything is perfect, but much closer to and much, we've made a lot of progress. Only in some places. But we'll in some places, um, true. Um, so people are trying to figure out now that we're all, you know, can be more open and there's more options. Um, like how to deal with relationships and stuff. And um, the poly community especially can learn from the sort of hetero poly who've been able to maybe do it a little bit more openly longer That's and true. how they've structured that. Um, and another thing they said in here, which I, which I thought was really interesting and maybe goes back to why they have included this, um, is that the heterosexual community has a lot more um, cultural and gender-based pressures on them and societal pressures that they have to overcome if they want to do anything differently, including perhaps things like pegging or... Um, or polyamory, or polyamory, or or anything else. Air quote non traditional. Ding 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 ding. ding, ding. <laughs> um, in a relationship beyond. Why are you, you doing know, three dings? Ding, how many dings do you do? Two ding dings, like for the quotes. Oh, it's the Jeopardy. <laughs> We've been watching a lot of Jeopardy. A lot of Jeopardy. Okay. Um, I do think one thing that's left out of this heterosexual subculture, though, is uh, that they don't mention at all in this book, mm-hmm. um, or in this section, is that um. Mm-hmm. There is a space there for how we can learn to be better allies from mm-hmm. heterosexuals. Yeah. Because heterosexuals form um, a large part of, like, monogamous but LGBTQ. Um, you okay? Just <laughs> casually choking on my drink. It's okay. <laughs> LGBTQ subcultures. And they are there as allies. And that's a very um, mm-hmm. good skill set to be able to learn. Um, so, but they don't put that in there, but I would have liked them to. Mm-hmm. Okay, next section, which. The next sexual subculture they talk about is uh, trans and queer folks. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, wait, ch- trans and gender queer folks, my apologies. Mm-hmm. Um, again, as a caveat, I want to say that we are aware of the ongoing discussion about these different terms, like gender expansive or um, agender, non-binary. And I'm sure that, I'm sure that Janet and Dossie also are. Um, yeah. But they have kind of put everyone under gender queer slash non-binary slash trans um, and they use them pretty interchangeably. Um, that does bother me a little bit. I feel like there is this would be a much more nuanced discussion if they if they try to mm. be more thoughtful about about what you could learn from each of those subsets. Yeah. But onwards with what they say. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're talking um, about the lessons that that this subculture has to teach us and like the the example this has mm-hmm. set and I think it's like pretty pretty um obvious that, that this is like an area that maybe we haven't been as thoughtful of. I mean they didn't have this section in there at all until mm-hmm. this edition. Mm-hmm. Um I've dated people who are transitioning um and who are genderqueer and uh, I can attest that there is some behaviours and emotional states that may be hormone related that you don't necessarily even think about until you you hear from someone or you're around someone who might be taking um, hormone replacement therapy. Right. And actually seeing that 
Yeah, I mean, how that shifts. It's like things that you don't necessarily think about, like hunger patterns. Mm -hmm. Um, Not necessarily how hungry you are, but like when in the day. And Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, maybe that's why I get more hungry in the mornings during my period, for example. And it was like, ah, I wasn't expecting to learn that lesson today. Interesting. Um, So in the same kind of way, you can also learn from genderqueer and non-binary folks the who get to live in this um, this experience where they might be crossing or softening boundaries of gender. Mm-hmm. And that can demonstrate what life without a binary gender might look like. And that right. can be quite interesting to explore. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, there's always been people that have lived outside that binary, and they do mention intersex people who are um, people who are biologically born with uh, both chromosomes and or genitalia in place mm-hmm. and are often unfortunately um, mm-hmm. reassigned at birth right. sometimes without even the parental permission which is mm-hmm. awful um, mm. but without being aligned necessarily to a heteronormative idea of what um, gender and sex should look like these trans and genderqueer folks they go on to live super happy and are fulfilling and awesome lives um, mm-hmm in an extremely hostile world. So there's right. also this thing which we can learn that like socially we are going to have to poly people sometimes come into conflict with mm-hmm. others because of the way that right. we choose to live our lives or yeah. the, the way that we are programmed to, to feel attraction. And mm-hmm. I know that they do talk about that in a future chapter, but this is another subculture that's had to be right. in that space of conflict pretty regularly just yeah. existing yeah. and yet you still have trans women that can teach you so much about how to be like hyper feminine and super strong at the same time and they'll do it all whilst throwing a shoe at a policeman in the stonewall riots of 1969 and <laughs> i just think that that's yeah. that says a lot about the determination to be free so yeah. that's my synopsis of that section and i just i, think, I loved the whole uh, section and i wish it was a whole chapter yeah and i don't necessarily have much to add i mean i think for me, the two the two things that I pulled out of there was just about the real strength to to stick up for who you are and to overcome a lot of oppression and pushback and challenges and people not understanding um, and realizing um, you know that that people can overcome that mm-hmm. um, and also the fact that that we can learn like you said like gender is malleable all of these constructs are constructs yeah gender well, they- relationships what all of that means it, it's something that's like it doesn't necessarily you know that's just the way people have defined it um and seeing people who actually say no that's not how does it have the strength to stand up for the fact that actually the way that society has set it up mm. is not the way that the world is but before we move off of this section though i wanted to say that even though we can sit here and say like oh you know trans and genderqueer folks they live in this hard life and they manage to excel it's also worth mentioning that this is the biggest subset of um, the LGBTQ plus community that experiences physical violence. I mean, it's, it's something like 11% of all, of all LGBTQ are trans women of color. Mm-hmm. T- like 12%. 12% mm-hmm. of all of the lesbian, gay, bi, transsexual, unquestioning, queer, pansexual, etc., 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 intersex included... 11% of them are not trans women of colour, and yet they account for this huge percentage of the, the attacks. Of the attacks. Um, That's and I awful. think recently uh, in America, the, the life expectancy of a trans woman of colour is 35, which is nuts. 
Like they have the same, they have a, a worse life expectancy than a middle-aged English farmer. Like, you know what I yeah. mean? It, it's just sad. So also use the space to just kind of acknowledge that they're, they're strong in the face of such insurmountable stuff. Mm-hmm. They shouldn't have to necessarily mm-hmm. take on. Okay, next section. We are moving on to Tantra and spiritual sex practitioners. I guess I'll go take my clothes off then. Oh boy. <laughs> you do some really bad yoga. Okay. Um, this is not something that I have much exposure or experience with. Um, but it's it's talking about, you know, ideas of um, like different ways of, of understanding sex. Um, which goes back a little bit to what we talked about in the last chapter. With the um, sexual utopian people? The sexual utopian, but even the last, like, last episode. Oh, uh, okay. We're talking about, like, sort of redefining what sex necessarily means mm-hmm. um, and the way we think about it. Um, they understood, they they have a quote from um, one of these books that says, every orgasm is a spiritual experience. Um, yeah, thinking about sex as a spiritual Activity is mm-hmm. um, is an interesting one. Yeah, I haven't come it's across people not... that, that. I mean, I do obviously, but like that. But I don't. Um, the ones that they were talking about here, like tantra, and yeah. um, I don't even know how you say it. Kosh, uh, kudoshka. Kudoshka. Which I looked up, and yeah. and um, I realized it was like super culturally insensitive. Like right. they claim that it's sexual techniques for spiritual and sexual healing. Um, mm-hmm. rooted in Mayan and um, Cherokee cultures. And then I, I did a bit more research and basically it was a bunch of people in the Cherokee nation being like, nope. That's not real. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, I think the main part of that is, is again, for everybody to, to, to sort of take a second and think that there are people who have chosen to do things differently and define these things. And we can learn from those ideas and, and you know, try to, to use that ourselves. That's sort of my takeaway on that as well. Okay. Yeah. 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 Okay, the next section, the next sexual subculture is kink, leather, and BDSM. And that didn't surprise me at all because yeah. the the history of kink, BDSM, and, and um, like, play, as mm-hmm. it were, and polyamory, non-monogamy, is mm-hmm. so interwoven to each other. Mm-hmm. I mean... This just didn't surprise me at all. Mm-hmm. And they even say polyamory and open relationships are very common in most kink communities. Yeah. As the chances are slim of finding one partner who is open to all your fantasies and whose company you can tolerate on an ongoing basis. Sorry, <laughs> I just reread that. And as I was reading, I was like, that is so passive aggressive. <laughs> um, uh, but yes, obviously, once you have that conversation about maybe not, um, maybe deviating in your sexual practices from what the norm would prescribe... And you somehow manage to find out about this activity that you want to try, like, I don't know, bondage or something. Um, mm-hmm. You would then presumably have a discussion with your partner about it. Or you, you'd fucking hope so. One, one would think. Otherwise, this is a whole yeah, different a discussion whole different if you're discussion. not. But, like, you'd have a discussion with your partner. And that partner might be like, okay, I don't really want to do that. Right. But then you're already having a discussion about a want that that person can't necessarily fulfill. Right. Um, and so then where do you go from that? And I can completely see why that subculture would be um, so closely tied to polyamory. And I think one of the things that they don't put in here, but, um, oh no, they do. They do put in here. Uh, There's also a lot that we can learn from that subculture about the boundaries of negotiated consent, Mm -hmm. which is an ongoing theme through a lot of these subcultures. Keeps coming up. 
including um, the next one. Do you want to take this one? Yeah, we'll move right on. Uh, the next one is sex workers. Um, and they point out that many happy and healthy people work in the sex industry. It is not just um, the way that it may be portrayed in the media or that it's this really horrible thing that only awful people do. Mm-hmm. And that there are, you know, sex work is actually, you know, a wide variety of things. It's not just porn or um, prostitution. Um, it can also be like phone sex and um, cam girls, cam girls and a, a variety of other things. Um, in, and those relationships are not always this cold transactional thing. This is just a different way, again, of looking at what are relationships and what is intimacy and realizing that like the, these people who engage in this have found their own way of handling these issues. Um, and in many cases are, are doing it and very happy and there's a lot of things we can learn from them. Um, Including boundaries, limit setting, communication, and sexual negotiation. And I also want to add, like, skill. Skill? Yeah, like, chances size people know a bunch of stuff I don't know how to do. Yeah. Um, and I actually put something here on the ASI, which is just because you pay for it doesn't make it bad. Mm-hmm. And then I thought about it, and I wrote uh, food and cooking, because I'm really bad at cooking. Mm-hmm. Uh, but just because I go out and I pay for food doesn't right. make it any less nutritious good for me and satisfying <laughs> right. an experience and i also will watch cooking shows right. despite the fact that i don't want to cook just like i might watch porn despite the fact i don't necessarily want to fuck so i'm sure right. i can push that yeah i, I like that that's a good uh <laughs> i like it. sex i go right hand in hand yeah. um yeah so yeah okay so the final sexual subculture they talk about is uh, I, I don't think it's actually a sexual subculture. I think it's more of a... Just a general subculture to learn from. I guess maybe it is. And I'm going to take it because I have more experience in this yep. than you do. I've brought your You've name wrote, on the Okay, great. <laughs> <laughs> um, they entitled it cultural diversity. And I think they've entitled that because whilst these other sexual subcultures are talking about sexual diversity, um, culturally, there's a lot of diversity in the way that relationships are formed and what you have to go through... Um, and the way that intimacy is portrayed in if you're in a, a cross-cultural relationship, which I've been in many of, sometimes in, like, you know, a different place, sometimes in a different language. Mm-hmm. And what they really take from this is that you need to be aware that intimate connections with people whose backgrounds is unlike yours is likely to look different, mm-hmm. but doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be... Um, I mean, it might be more difficult, obviously, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's not just as rewarding in a different way. Mm-hmm. And I can definitely attest to that. Like, I have had people before talk to me about a relationship I was having and being very questioning about, like, why it seems like so much work. Like, how do you guys even communicate? Why, what kind of discussions can you have when you're both operating in your third language? Mm-hmm. Um, like, and my answer in this particular situation was, the way that the words that I choose have to be so thought like thoughtful mm-hmm. um, in this particular relationship that it really distilled down the emotional connection into into the pretty elementary because it was right at the beginning of me learning this language um, so and that's that's beautiful that's really great and I was really enjoying that and I think when you're polyamorous you can kind of have a relationship that's cross-cultural um, and maybe see against a comparison with like another cross-cultural relationship what you're learning and what you're doing differently and that is enriching for you mm-hmm. um, 
like food. Like food. <laughs> like food. Food is delicious from lots of places. When you're experiencing a food that's not from your own culture, enjoy it, but be respectful. Um, yeah. One of the things that I think they don't necessarily talk about here is the way that if you're not being thoughtful about that interaction, mm-hmm. it can become like a fetish. Mm-hmm. So I have, I have a friend who um, lives in Japan, very close friend, and she's um, in a relationship with a Japanese man. And there is a... She even sent me the word for it in Japanese. But there is a word for, for white men that go and explicitly hunt yeah. out Japanese women. Mm-hmm. It's like an actual thing. That doesn't necessarily surprise me, but yeah. I know, but the fact that there's a word for it, I don't know, it just feels really great. Yeah. Um, so be as thoughtful as you can, because otherwise you'll be like a, mm. a gross specialiser. And the, uh, the last thing they take... Did you want to say something? Uh, I did want to say something. Yeah. And then you... Um, I think... And I haven't really dated cross-culturally, so I, I'm not speaking from experience, just from thinking on, on it. Um, but you know, it talks about, like, when you're dating cross-culturally, um, you know, there are those barriers that you just talked about, and it makes you much more thoughtful. And you also have to be open to messing up and oh, yeah. tripping up and being uncomfortable. Yeah. Which is, when you're dating within your culture, you, you still will be. But people try to avoid that sometimes. And because you, you're already speaking the same language and the same ideas, you can you sort of avoid some of those things mm-hmm. um, because it's uncomfortable. Whereas, you know, in a situation like that, you don't have the option to because there's such a span of differences. Like mm-hmm. you're going to do something, yeah. some sort of faux pas at some point or vice versa. Or But I will say that I think often people that are um, coming across, like, how do I say this? Nicely. Um, I won't. I'll just say it horribly. Uh, white, people, <laughs> white people are really bad at this. Uh-huh. Like, white European mm-hmm. people, specifically. We kind of assume that the person that we're mm-hmm. dating cross-culturally will conform to what we would like. Mm-hmm. I don't know why. <laughs> oh, yeah, mm. racism. Um, uh, colonialism. Yeah. It's a, it's a hold <laughs> exactly. over. Um, whereas when I have friends that are dating cross-culturally, like, for example, um, I don't know, West African with a Caribbean... Mm-hmm. woman that there'll be like much less expectation of the other partner to conform right. to like a disproportional degree mm-hmm. um basically if you're not being in the middle like you're not you're not right. being kind and but, and also to note that if you're in a cross-cultural relationship uh chances are the boundaries that you have will be different from theirs and there might be a reason for that like right. i've dated women of another culture of a culture where if they found out so if it, if they were found out that they were dating a woman, they could be killed. Right. They could potentially like lose that their, their father could lose their position. Their, you know, that their, their mother mm-hmm. would lose their job. Like their sister would lose their marriage. Like it would have huge knock-on effects, not just for that individual that would mm-hmm. put them in personal danger, but mm-hmm. also their whole community mm-hmm. and the whole wider family could be affected by their actions. And if you're not being mindful of that and just expecting mm-hmm. them to be like, well, why aren't you out? you kind of like not doing the work necessary to to be mm-hmm. in that relationship in a healthy and appropriate way. Yeah. I think that's all I want to say on that. Yeah. Okay, so uh, with that, I think it's fair to say that Dossi and uh, Janet have been very good at showing us that there is no universally accepted boundaries of gender and attraction among mm-hmm. consenting adults. Um, and there isn't really like a right or a wrong way to do anything. Mm-hmm. 
I really like this this part of that sentence. Limits of sexual exploration are not handed down on stone tablets by some higher authority. I just, <laughs> like I, sort of just mo- Moses like, character there being like, yeah, God, like, how do like, we fuck? Oh, thanks. That's really helpful. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and that, yeah, I mean. Yeah. And I think that they they end this chapter just talking about, again, going back to what I said at the beginning, this whole chapter sounds like a historical overview, but really is to make the reader feel like they're not alone. They're not right. the only weird one. Right. They don't have to feel like this is impossible. There are so many ways that you can right. choose to live your life that actually wanting to date two people at once is not that weird. No. Yeah. And that plenty of, of people from some of these groups, most of them, have had to, you know, figure this out and yeah. survive a lot of pushback and sometimes a lot worse than that. Yeah. And are still here. And if we look at where the world has come in the last 50 years, like, have made better. a lot of progress and it gets better. It does. Um, so they have, they have an extra bit on the end of this, but I think we're going to have to attach it on to the next, the next episode. Mm-hmm. Um, but we would advise our listeners to go to um, blackandpolly.org. Dot org, yeah. Black and Polly all together, all one word, fully spelt out, dot org, because that is the topic of their little add-on, and we'll have mm-hmm. to add that on to the next chapter because we're running out of time. Cool. So, yeah, thanks for joining us. And, uh, yeah, we'll see you next time on Chapter 5. Bye. Bye. You can find Polly Pages on Instagram at Polly Pages. And if you have any questions or comments for us, please feel free to send them to pollypages at gmail.com. Our awesome intro and outro music is by Mint Green, and you can follow them on Instagram and Linktree at Mint Green Music. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. Books. <laughs>